Hello, my bark brethren. It is David Oakes here, and welcome to episode 21 of this special Dendro series all about trees. Last week we were looking at our English question mark elms, trees so downright majestic that it led the naturalist Oliver Rackham to say of our elms that they were the most critical genus in the British flora, being as they were among other things the tallest trees in the English countryside. Which isn't technically accurate, but it is fair to say that Rackham loved his elms. Anyway, these trees were once so plentiful across the British Isles that in Warwickshire they became known as the Warwickshire weed. But this may all seem sadly confusing to the current generation who would be hard-pressed, although not impossibly tasked, to find examples of mature elm trees growing in the wild because, as discussed last week, due to Dutch elm disease, so many of our wonderful elms are now ex-trees. But if last week's episode examined elm death, let me use this week to redress the balance and explore... Elm Life. Up who day, the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. If you go back in time far enough, just after the end of the last ice age, to a time when man, beast and plant had all been allowed to walk back across the channel, the first genuine woodlands you would have met on the British Isles after our sea buckthorn had kindly helped reinvigorate our post-glacial soils would have been populated by the birches, by hazel, and by the Scots pine. These were, and indeed remain, species that grow successfully in a colder climate. But jump forward another 3,000 years, when things have warmed up a tad, and the climate has gotten damper, and you will find a forest more like that which we have today, one populated by the oaks and by the small-leaved lime. But alongside them, you'll have found another species, for a whopping 2,000 years, Standing alongside our oaks as a co-dominant in these early British woodlands, you'll have found tree number 34. The Witch Elm. The Witch Elm, Ulmus glabra. The Witch Elm is our one true native elm and can reach heights in excess of both the English and field elms, often hitting the heady peaks of around 40 metres. This is a height that even the Scots pine struggles to reach. The plus 40 metre club is a realm preserved for true tree giants. The ash, the beech, the oak, the lime and our elm. The leaves of all elm species are instantly recognisable. Of all our native species, the elm is unique in the fact that the main leaf blade is attached to the petiole, the leaf stalk, asymmetrically. They're wonky. It looks a bit like God was being called down for dinner by his mum and he rushed the final piece on his elm tree airfix kit. Added to that, a witch elm leaf often has more than just the one usual tip. It can commonly have two or even three, resembling some kind of devilish leaf trident. And I've even seen one with five leaf tips. Seriously, you have very little excuse for failing to identify an elm leaf. Sort of. Being 100% certain about which elm is a which elm is made a little trickier due to our old friend's subspecies, see the episode on the white beam, and her best bud hybridisation, see the episode on the willows. Oliver Rackham again said, There are, arguably, more kinds of elm in England than of all other native trees together. You see, elms hybridise very readily with other species of elm, and indeed other subspecies of elm too. For instance, as covered last week, the English elm is now regarded as one such subspecies of the field elm, and the English elm is wont to hybridise further too. 
So depending on how you wish to determine what is a true species, estimates of the number of elm species found in the British Isles ranges from between two, the witch and field elms, and 72. But let's head back into the olden days again for a mid-Holocene whodunit. About 5,000 years ago, a time coinciding with the start of a gradual cooling of our climate again, the co-dominant elms started to disappear. This botanical event is known to scientists as the elm decline, and the reason for this loss of elms is not entirely clear. Some believe the loss of these elms was due to this gradual cooling, but this is not backed up by the modern distribution of elms across Europe, where they clearly thrive in cool, dry conditions. Although, in the specific case of our witch elm, in Britain today, the witch does seem to prefer to make its home in damper, milder conditions, and can most often be found running alongside a brook, or deep in a forest, or, fortunately for me, not too far from my home, where there's a river flanked by a great many mature specimens. Other scientists hypothesised that the elm decline could have been caused by Stone Age man clearing the forests, but again, possible, but at this time there too was a corresponding drop in other tree species, which subsequently recovered, whilst the elm did not. This leads others to believe that a disease, one that specifically targeted elms, may have left its mark. Does that sound eerily familiar? But the truth is, it is probably a combination of all of the above factors, and although not in the numbers that they once were, the elms remained present in our forests right up until the present day, or at least until the most recent, most vicious pathogen attack. But here is where the witch elm finds itself at a bit of an advantage. Even in the face of the dreaded Dutch elm disease, the witch is a survivor. The bark of the witch elm possesses a chemical called alnulin, this chemical deters the elm bark beetles and with them the tree-strangling fungus at the metaphorical root of Dutch elm disease. So although still susceptible to the disease, the witch elm, our one indisputable native, has not been ravaged quite so heavily as the others. Which means, unlike the other native-ish elms on the British Isles, the witch is more likely to survive to maturity and continues to reproduce sexually, rarely needing to reproduce through the use of suckers, and as such looks like nothing else found in our woodlands. A mature, flowering witch elm possesses intoxicatingly romantic, purpley, pinky, reddish flowers, albeit flowers lacking petals. They're bunched together tightly and spread all along the tree's twigs. A flowering witch elm is smothered in colour. It is a site of poetry, of forbidden passion and of pastoral yearning, so much so that it is our witch elm that is singled out by E.M. Forster in Howard's End. To Helen, at all events, her life was to bring nothing more intense than the embrace of this boy, who played no part in it. He had drawn her out of the house, where there was danger of surprise and light. He had led her by a path he knew, until they stood under the column of the vast witch elm. A man in the darkness... He had whispered, I love you, when she was desiring love. In time, his slender personality faded. The scene that he had evoked endured. In all the variable years that followed, she never saw the like of it again. But, unlike Helen's love, the flowers of the witch elm will occur yearly and are hermaphroditic, so, spoiler alert... Helen, were she an elm, would never have needed the likes of Elm Paul or Elm Leonard anyway. 
And once the elm flowers are pollinated, the witch elm becomes the first of this podcast series to create a piece of perfect botanical design. A long, single-seeded fruit known as a Samara. Samaras are elegant, wind-dispersed, winged fruits. You'll no doubt know the helicopter Samaras of a sycamore tree or the keys on the ash. But for me, the simplicity of the witch elm Samara is a thing of beauty. A whole tree captured on the breeze, a sail in want of a hull, a life in search of a new home for a new root system to grow a new trunk. Now, why is the witch elm called the witch elm? Is it to do with witches and folklore? Well, no. Although, that said, English folklore does suggest that a witch elm stood as a boundary between the human world and the elf world, leading to the tree's folk name, the elfin wood, but that's about as folklory as the name gets. In reality, the witch elm's etymological root is from the Old English wicca, W-I-C-E, which means pliant or supple, hence wicker chairs, etc., and has nothing to do with witches. Apologies. But if you need a witch fix, like need one, then go listen to the episode on the Rowan Tree, So Many Witches, All the Witches, All the Time. Anyway... This pliability makes elmwood suitable for decorative turning and for making furniture. Similarly, the bendability, that's a word, of its inner bark means it could be used to create a kind of twine. This inner bark also, when boiled, produces a liquid used traditionally both as a yellow fabric dye and as a thick tonic to alleviate sore throats. You just know a medicine's efficacy is to be trusted when in the hope of losing your hacking cough you're at risk of staining your esophagus bright yellow. And whilst we're talking names, the witch elm's scientific name, Glabra, refers to the smoothness of the tree's bark. And it is smooth. It is a tree that welcomes hugs. Thank you to Adam for his Rackham, and thank you to my other half for recording the extract from Forster, and indeed, for so, so much more. But to end, just in case you're in need of more mythical significance, then nowhere is the elm more important than in the world of Norse mythology. If the Old Testament has the Garden of Eden, the Vikings had a beach, not the tree kind, rather a beach of the sandy variety. My mind's eye envisions West Sands in St Andrews, famous for being the filming location for the opening of Chariots of Fire. So imagine the scene. Waves are crashing onto the sands of a beach. This is the shore of a brave new world, a world forged from the eroded remains of gods who sought to master the elements and failed. Nothing but the forces of nature exist, untamed, constant, unerring. Ian Charleston and Nigel Havers are nowhere in sight. Witnessed by no one, two pieces of drift would sit in the surf, the large trunks of two great trees, an ash tree and an elm tree. Someone somewhere wonders, if a tree falls in a forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a noise? Similarly, if two tree trunks are washed up on a Viking beach and no one is there to see them, how can a new Norse myth be forged? Fortunately, diligently, on the horizon, in the liminal space between sand and sky... Three visitors start to leave footprints in the virgin sand, destination driftwood. Three divine brothers use their hands to shape the wood, to carve, to whittle and to smooth. The forms of two people, one man and one woman, emerge slowly from the grain. Odin, the first of three brothers, breathes life into the tree. Wood and lungs attempt to cough up the saline water. 
Vey opens the mouth, frees the tongue, opens the eyes and lets in the light. But it is the brother Vili who cranks the handle to the once wooden brains and starts the process of consciousness and of life. The first man and first woman take in their surroundings, feel the waves at their feet, soak their lungs in sea air and see the forests rise on the horizon. Their creators depart, taking their footprints with them, leaving behind nothing else but two names. The man is Aska, the ash tree, and the first woman, the elm tree, is Embla. Many of the trees in this podcast series have special significance for me, for the most part because of things that have happened in my past, places I've been, trees I've climbed, even species I've been named after, etc. But the elm is likely to have the greatest significance of all of the 56-ish trees as I move forward through my life. A new sapling broke through the earth as I wrote these tree tales down. And it is from the elm, magical, increasingly rare and valuable, that she takes her name. My daughter. Thank you for listening.